Welcome to another edition of Practitioner Radio, Pink Elephant's podcast for the IT management community. to Practitioner Radio, Pink Elephant's podcast for the IT management community, episode 41, The Evolution and Children of Service Level Management. Hey, it's Chris Dancy. Hi, Troy. Hey, Chris. How you doing today? Fine. I'm loving, loving, loving our last show, 10 minutes into the agile scrum world of DevOps. Yeah, I've actually had a, quite a few pickup on conversations on that as well. It's it's an interesting conversation to talk about incremental improvements versus total transformation. Yeah, I've never done that total transformation or incremental very well. I do. <laughs> hey, you know, you, you, we're gonna we're gonna do a little high school science today, aren't we? You know, a little bit of biology. Yes, you know, we're gonna we're gonna mix it up with some biology and ITIL. Two subjects you never thought would be mixed together. No, and I remember I remember a couple of years ago you said to me, Chris, how will we get to a show every few weeks about? I'm like, Troy, we can do this. If we have to pull in high school science, we will do it. And here we are, 41 episodes that are doing this. So get me started. Get my mind warmed up. All right. So the topic of conversation today is the evolution and children of service level management. So this, this concept of service level management, near and dear to service management, has seen major change over the last three iterations of IT service management, ITIL. Mm-hmm. And that's our focus today. What has happened? What children are we talking about? Yeah, now you had a blog one time also where you, uh, no, that was the instant problem dance. That wasn't about children. Well, you know, some, some things happen at dances and then sometimes children resolve, oh. but that's not the topic today. Oh, okay. <laughs> we really are going deep into high school uh, biology. So for those people who, who are interested in this, this, there's been an evolution with service level management from V2 up through V3 through V3 version 2011. Can we just get a primer on kind of that evolution for people? Yeah, and actually this came about because... Uh, Anil Desankis and I, he's a former, he's also a Pinker colleague of mine. He was working on a client site and they were talking about adopting service level management. And this conversation started because this organization wanted to start somewhere, but wasn't ready to go out and fully deploy service level management, business relationship management, service catalog. And so we started talking about how can a company start kind of get started on this and build this over time. And what occurred to me in that conversation is that if you think about the history of service level management, the context, knowing what happened before, you know, sometimes allows us to predict and manage what goes before us. Service level management has seen some big shifts in version two, the concept of setting up service agreements, service level agreements, SLAs was a major part, of course, of service level management, establishing performance targets and, and having agreements with customers. But also embedded within that concept was the definition of a service, hmm. right? Even before version three, we, you know, it wasn't suddenly with version three that service definition was actually in ITIL. It existed, but in one process. Yes, but that, that that's that's revisionist history for a lot of folks. Yeah, and but this catalog concept was also there. We talked about service catalogs, and that was part of service level management. And there was also this conversation of customer engagement, where the service level manager at that time would meet with the business customer service consumer on an ongoing basis, probably monthly, and kind of get a sense of how things are going after they've reported on 
you know, their performance targets for the month. So mm. this concept of catalog and this customer facing engagement, I'll call it business relationship management, at, you know, but that's what it became. Mm. This customer relationship side of it, that all used to be part and parcel of one process, service level management. Why, why, why did we uh, do mitosis on it? And this mitosis where the <laughs> cells split, right? Right. Yeah. Happened in version three. So version three said, well, let's focus everything on the service. So the service now becomes the entire theme of the framework. In version two, you could argue and rightly criticize the, the framework for being focused on process. Version three elevates this principle of service as the entire basis for having process in the first place and also elevates and extracts this concept of catalog into its own separate practice process or call it what you want. So the catalog somehow now is extracted from the service level management. So leaving service level management now focused still on setting up operational level agreements, underpinning contracts, service level agreements with customers, but still maintaining this relationship management component, this front office role. We'll use that term. I'm going out to to meet my customer, the account management concept. What we saw happen in the recent edition of 2011E, right, the recent edition of uh, ITIL, was now the final kind of, maybe not final, because we where does this end? Who knows? But the next iteration of this, which is where the business relationship management concept, this construct of account management, relationship management, not only was it extracted out of service level management, but it was promoted higher in the food chain. It now became, rightly so, a strategic practice and role and function, hmm. largely engaged on strategic demand management intake of new requirements to input into portfolio management. Mm. So, of course, now we've had this, again, what'd you call it? Mismosis? Yeah, it's mitosis. Mitosis, thank you. It's the mitosis of uh, service level management. So in B2, it was like all one thing. You know, there was, we defined service, we had catalog, uh, service level agreements. In B3, kind of 2007, catalog kind of came out of it. And you can remember in that time frame, there was a big emphasis, you know, if you looked at the marketplace on catalog and service level management. It was huge. And that's when everyone kept dropping the Amazonic. But then B3, you're completely right. I mean, uh, I'm sorry, B3 2011. The BRM, the business relationship management, really did become beholden to this concept of the portfolio management, the demand, and, and not only going out amongst the people, but actually listening to them, whereas kind of that middle step seemed like go out and talk to them. But now, of course, the question is, what happens to service level management? The children have left home. Hmm. Right, taking off major component chunks of used to be service level management activity and responsibility. What is the role of service level management now? If you read social media or read anything except maybe your blogs, because nobody actually writes about this anymore except for you. I mean, seriously. I mean, well, Rob England, I think, does a really good job at like getting in. In it's not getting into the weeds when you've got a weed whacker, right? <laughs> you know I mean, the, the, but nobody writes about this. But if if you were to look at the media out there, all service level management is, is literally, this is the one thing everybody says when, when you read their tweets. Did you talk to the customer and physically sign an agreement? Is there anything more to it than that at this point? Or is, it, is that maybe that's all we're left with? That's why that's all I'm seeing. Well, that's the interpretation. It was even back in version two. The whole goal was this SLA, right? They would even hmm. you know define SLAs before they could understand what they did for a living in <laughs> regards to their services. Some, some marriages are like that. <laughs> that's the prenup, right? 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the reality is that's still true today, but that's still not probably what service level management is left with. It's more about what people interpret as service level management to be. Because mm-hmm. I've actually, you know, even extended the premise, and this is not idle, this is my my view and interpretation, is I think now the catalog has to be understood as the master service level agreement. Because that's my standard offers, which have attributes and descriptions about all the things that we do relative to standard delivery. And the service owner now, this concept, you know, introduced in ITIL version three, mm-hmm. is now responsible because they own and are accountable for the service to come up with the service definition, the service attributes, and also the performance attributes for that service. So they are literally defining all of that. It used to be service level management's job before the service owner concept was fully fleshed out. So what is service level management left with as a process or in one way, is service level management not just that thing called service level management now, but is it all of the above? Is it really now the service level management system incorporating what ITIL now calls three processes? I, well, I like your thinking there because a system comprised of three processes is easier for me to comprehend than empty nest syndrome for SLM. Poor old SLM. <laughs> yeah, because I really, I get this kind of sitting at home, knitting a blanket, SLM, you know, looking out a frosted window, wondering why the phone doesn't <laughs> ring. You know, My children never call. <laughs> yeah, they never call. They cared for me. And that service owner, gosh, he's, he's the worst of the three. All right. <laughs> yeah, he's he's the cousin. He's the, or the illegitimate child of service catalog. I don't Trust know. Trust me, the, the <laughs> listeners got it. So they've already, they've already gone there and left the building. All right, All right. There, there's still some work to be done that the uh, the BRM and the in the service catalog and the service owner haven't really picked up, such as establishing operational level agreements between the, the various direct and indirect service providers, right? The ones that collaborate on service provision. They have to have OLAs. That's a good point. They, they, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the underpinnings. Underpinning contracts, absolutely. Yeah, so those two, are, they're still tied. I mean, they're, they, they come visit. Someone's got to do that work, and that didn't yeah. leave ha- the home yet, right? So that's yeah. still in the purview of what is officially called service level management. Although you, you, I'd, I'd love to get your opinion it's on a future podcast about where you see underpinning going with this kind of you know, rapid race to external providers, which you said we've always had. You've said clearly we've always had them, but it seems to, it seems like there's a tremendous focus on having more of them now. Well, you can argue, actually make an argument that supplier management actually was also related here to the underpinning contract, right? Because that's kind of yeah. gone off in that direction. I would make that argument, but then you're the you're the expert. Consider that service level management used to be a frontward facing front office process, right? It was right out there in our customers office having daily conversations. Hmm. But now it's been relegated to a back office supporting advisory type process because now it's helping the service owner get that service defined and the performance attributes considered and defined. Now it's helping the service catalog in the sense that it's helping more of a, from a business analysis type of role, classification and supporting that concept. Uh, it's supporting by perhaps inheriting the performance management and dashboard creation which is given to the BRM to present to their client. So there's that whole measurement reporting thing that actually could be inherited by service level management to beef up their role. It's supporting supplier management to make sure and officiate that the underpinning contracts are supporting the other agreements established within the service level and service owner and service catalog conversations. The key is it's really kind of become more of a back office supporting structure than the front office 
uh, on stage presence it used to have. Well, and it seems to me like a, that if there was a process life cycle, <laughs> like a life cycle for processes in general, they do seem to go from like you know kind of structural to front front and center stage to B roll back back. You know, it you never see them come back from that that supporting role after they leave front front and center stage is that i mean and i just i'm noticing this as you're as you're explaining this to me about service level uh management because i never really thought about how it was kind of the front office and now it's kind of a back office analysis role and i love that concept by the way i mean that is so important for people for me it's so important to take away that service level management now really is kind of a back office analysis role because there really is no in my opinion i mean you see this in everyday life, I'm just a speculator. I don't see a lot of analysis and data around that role, what, what that person could be doing in the back. I don't see those reports, those numbers. I don't, I don't, and I certainly don't see how they're affecting the other roles we've talked about. Yeah, so it's more of an enabling function, right? And process yeah. because it's gathering the data, it's doing analysis. I like that concept. You could even get into the big data conversation here, business intelligence. Well, I, I avoided it. I avoided it, but you heard it. That's what's strange about all this. Yeah, I heard it in the uh, undertone of what you were saying. <laughs> and it's then equipping the BRM, the service owner, to do the job they've been asked to do with more effectiveness by giving them the data they need to make decisions. Okay. And ensuring the underpinning, sustaining elements like OLAs are in place that they can go and face their customers with credibility. Okay. So it's launched its children, and now it's you know putting the children on the front stage and making sure the, the children are successful. Do you think uh, again some speculation? The supplier management, you know, is kind of the cousin to the underpinning contract person. I guess just if I could just because I don't ask many. Well, I used to ask a lot of questions during practice. <laughs> is there a concept of a service owner in relationship to an underpinning? someone who manages underpinning contracts, or is that completely supplier management? Did that make sense? Actually, it does It does relate. Okay, because I was actually just having this conversation yesterday with a client. Well, yeah, you and I are kind of linked together like brothers. <laughs> so so we've, we've talked about the fact that you really cannot outsource accountability, right? No. Now, you may give the car and the keys to someone else for someone else to drive because they're more skilled or equipped or they're a race car driver and you don't have that skill set, right? But you never want to hand over the ownership papers. You give them the car to drive, but you don't hand over the ownership papers. So what that mm. means is that if you've outsourced telephony or your wide area network, yes, you have a service owner that is external to your organization because that is coming from an outside supplier. But there's someone on the inside, inside the practitioner organization that is still or should be still the service owner for that service that's been externalized. So there's still a telephony service owner which is the accountable person to the business, right? The internal owner is maintains accountability because accountability cannot be outsourced. So there's this external owner that has a dotted line or a solid line to the internal owner. So the service owner in that context would have an underpinning contract okay. because they are contracting the execution of an externalized service, but not letting go of ownership and accountability to the ultimate service consumer the business on this side so literally in my mind i have a three-dimensional venn diagram now that makes sense yeah if you can if you think about it you can look at it in both directions because on the business side you have the brm talking to the business customer right and there's an sla between those roles and the sla is enabled by slm to make sure that it all trues up and it's synchronized with other things and on the other side of the coin 
you have a service owner who is working with an external service owner and is an underpinning contract. And SLM is ensuring that that underpinning contract is also in compliance with or lines up with other agreements that are to the other direction. Yeah, it's, you know, back to the the mitosis concept. I mean, all of these roles kind of wrapped around like a cell membrane that kind of, you know, inside them all as they divide and and become new. Uh, they're still supported by the fluid and the connections between. I, I kind of like it. I think there's a total link between uh, biology or uh, at least cell splitting in this concept. But I hadn't realized until this conversation how far we had come since V2 in all of these roles and concepts. And I, I, I watch a lot of people online who are service management experts or consultants or whatever their role may be. And when they go into an organization, I mean, especially for our listeners who might, you know, be in organizations of all sorts of sizes, how, I mean, I would think you'd have to spend a tremendous amount of time just to understand who does what. I mean, we've got some great definitions of kind of these roles and how they support and play everything, but it seems like not... It seems like it would be difficult to actually, if I had to go into an organization tomorrow, and this is probably why I'm not a consultant anymore, I would have a hard time even getting my head around who does what, much less than trying to figure out how these roles we're talking about fit in the in the organization. I mean, where do you even get started, I guess? The question is, how do you get started on this? Good question. <laughs> you start yeah. small, right? <laughs> you got to start mm. somewhere. First of all, you have to agree or disagree that these relationships are necessary. You have to have a business engagement point of contact with information that you can have a conversation around with performance measures that have been established and that you can basically stand up to and with integrity say, I met or did not meet. Is that important? Hmm. I, I think most organizations would say, yes, it's no longer tenable to basically just be the technologist in the basement. I've got to stand up and be a partner. And what that means is I've got to engage. Hmm. Okay. I think that's a fair statement. You might not have anybody doing that role today, but can you really tolerate continuing in that aspect? Now, the other side of this discussion, do you have suppliers today? Yeah. Do you manage them well? No, we keep cycling in and out of this in-source, outsource thing. Is that the supplier's issue? We first thought it was, but now we have to admit after the third marriage failure, maybe is partly my fault, mm. right? So procurement isn't supplier management. So maybe mm. we should stand up and uh, integrate suppliers better as integrated family members and partners, as they are so-called. We, we had a good show on that. So is that really tenable to leave it the way you've got it now? No. Do you have people doing it now? Obviously not. Should you? Yes. <laughs> mm. Does this mean new headcount? Maybe. How do I justify mm. it? How's it working for you now? Sorry, I just had a conversation with myself, but the reality is the first question you have to ask yourself is the current state tenable, supportable, and the status quo good enough? And if you can say yes, then go away and don't bother thinking about this for a while. If you have to say no, ask yourself some hard questions. And that's, and I think that really is the crux. I, I see a lot of IT professionals today when I travel. That's kind of where they're at. It's, there's almost this paralysis when it comes to old-fashioned leadership. Yes, this is important. Yes, we will do this. Or, well, it seems like everyone else is saying we should, so I'll kind of do it part way, and then until someone figures out that we need it, then I'll say, look, we're doing it. 
or I'll kind of do a part way till someone says, why are we wasting our time with simple little projects? And I'll pretend like I never did it. It's all about leadership. This, this absence of leadership just kind of drives me uh, mad some days. This is, this is key. You've hit the root cause to most mm. of our challenges is mm. the absence or the lack of account, absence of leadership or the lack of personal accountability at all levels. I was in a conversation just recently with an organization and they identified, yeah, we need process owner, someone who actually can stand up hmm. and be accountable. Uh, but can we do that as a team? I said, <laughs> no. <laughs> right. Well, but no one really wants to own it. Yeah. You know, we went, we went really fast through the, <laughs> we went really fast through the, to the fail faster mentality to the, oh, I'm not sure I even want to admit to that to do that. And I think, you know, part of that's the distracted nature of the world today, but, you know, I think it's time, you know, take it from someone who fails every single moment of the day. Uh, I just don't judge myself on it. Mindfulness tip of the day. This is something important. Well, actually, and I want to give some some grace to the people that I was just referring to. Because, mm. well, first of all, they agree and they're passionate that it should be done. They just don't want to put their hand up and do it. Why? Not because they don't believe it's important, but largely because they feel overworked and overwhelmed already. Yeah. Because we have, you know, reduced our... Human capital to such a, a small number. Yeah, but Troy, I want to go there for a minute. If you actually accept accountability, your workload decreases. It's a perception misnomer that if you make yourself accountable, that you actually are taking on more work. And I'll, I'll just let you sit with that. But I am someone who tries to take accountability all the time. Because once I learned what it was, I learned it was literally clearly communicating my needs. That's a reduction in work. That's a whole other podcast. Troy? <laughs> Sorry, I hate to have that. <laughs> Sorry, do you want to say something else? <laughs> no, I'm glad you clearly communicated your needs. <laughs> uh, yeah, a great book uh, uh, about accountability uh, by, by a lady named Bren. Uh, I can't remember her last name right now, but it's, it's, uh, the art of um, uh, being vulnerable is her TED Talk. Uh, but uh, her actual book is The Gift of Imperfection. So a little book. Uh, if you want to check that out today. With the gift of not imperfection, it's time for Troy's Thunderbolt. All right. Chris, consider that an organization's adoption of service level management, service catalog, BRM, all these things are a lot to bite off. If it evolved over time within ITIL, why not actually look at the same thing for your own organization. Troy, such a pleasure. I will talk to you in two weeks. I think people will get a lot out of the children ideology today. And as always, thank you for your time. It's much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks, Troy. 